0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: I spent about 20 years in Japan. Wow, really? Yeah. Uh, Did you ever get up or, or know about scuba? Ibaraki?
2: Um, yes. Yes, I, I have been there, actually. Okay. All right. The, yes. the, so the, the the University of Tsukuba. Right, right. Yeah. Right. So when I was a grad student, I had an affiliation there. Oh, um, you did? Oh, you did? Right. But I only would go up like once a month to get my money. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I was working with a professor up there. Well actually he was not working with me. <laughs> it was just a connection that I needed yeah. uh to you know help with my student visa. But in any case I like I said once a month I'd have to go up there um from Tokyo. It's Where, a beautiful beautiful campus.
1: When was that? I I bet we crossed paths without knowing it.
2: That would have been from 88 to 91.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was the time I was there. I was uh, teaching. I I originally went over. I know you are familiar with Kikoku Shijo and returnee students.
0: Right.
1: Scuba had set up a special entrance program for returnees. And then because of that, there was a high school, junior high. And I actually went over and I was teaching there when I first went for a couple of years in the uh, high school and junior high. And the children, of course, that we were teaching, were uh, a good portion of them were native English speakers. Wow. Okay. And I don't know if you're familiar, but you know, universities like Scuba, but a lot of the elite universities accorded these returnee students direct entry. In other words, they didn't have to take the entrance exam. As far as I know, they're the only class of people in Japan. That that didn't have to take the entrance exam.
2: Right. Yeah. So that's a good point. It's very unusual. Um, You're probably familiar with um, Roger Goodman. Oh, yeah. I taught with Roger. Oh, okay. Yeah. I I, I haven't been in touch with him for many years, but I I know him. Uh, Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Roger was at, uh, he was at Maykay Mm -hmm. as a, you know, he was doing his PhD in anthropology from Oxford. Right and was doing research on Maykay so the book that he produced is actually even though he does he changes the name it's actually about Maykay there in scuba
2: that's interesting yeah yeah and you know he made the argument that these re- returnee students they received these special privileges because they were well connected you know many people at the time in the media would would portray them as uh, somehow victims in right. a sense, but he said, actually, that, that's not what happened because their parents were able to put pressure on the authorities.
1: I thought he uh, he did a good job with, uh, he he was able to get a, a big picture sort of view. And of course, what became obvious to all of us, the picture, in the and, and as he paints it and documents it, the very parents of these students are the ones who promoted this image, that in some way they would be disadvantaged by their experience overseas. I mean, at one level, that's just nonsense. These were elite children of elites who themselves would enter into elite professions. Right. And and so, yeah, it's uh, it's a kind of bogus claim. That, <laughs> uh, I would guess that, a- as he points out, there must not be any society, I-, I I don't know about North Korea, where there is such a focus on children. Oh, they've left, and now they've come back. So we'll have to re them.
2: <laughs> yes, that's actually, um, that's a very good point. Uh, often when people bring this up, they say, well, it's because of Japanese culture. But to me, that's sort of a vague explanation. And I think a better way to look at it is, of course, there's a cultural element to it. But a lot of it has to do with politics, and the concern of the Japanese educational authorities to socialize their citizens in a certain way. And, you know, this is reflected, of course, in English education in Japan, where the English I don't know what it's like now, but when I was there, English had acquired this almost mystical sense to it. That if you could speak English, you were somehow not Japanese. But the benefit is that you had a connection to things outside of Japan. So they they make, as you know, living there for, for quite a while, they make a very clear distinction between What's Japanese and what is not Japanese? You know, I mean, otherwise Japan is a constitutional uh, democracy, but still, it, it has a hard, it can have a hard edge. I think when it comes to this uh, national identity. Yeah, absolutely.
1: You know, we've jumped right in, and we're saying, we're, <laughs> "I'm really excited to talk to you." Let me introduce. I'm talking to Brian McVeigh, and we have a, a kind of a shared background and interest in Japan. We've immediately jumped into to a conversation here. But Brian, you were, begin. you did research
2: in China originally, right? Well, I was actually an exchange student. I was still an undergrad, but yes, I did go to China. I studied at the Beijing University for one year, and this was, that's quite a while ago. That was 1982, 83, yeah, you've written a lot
1: on Japanese nationalism, and of course the. I, I think that our our topic. I I'm, I think we can tie all this together. It might seem such disparate elements <laughs> that we're putting together here. I am suspicious that our mutual experience in Japan points toward the the nature of the conversation that we're having. Mm-hmm. So you've written on Japanese nationalism and and the, the the nature of japanese society how would you describe then how that has played in to your work with uh, julian james
2: i mean i think if you step back and look at the history of global nationalism there are certainly connections you know this doesn't make sense of course unless we know a lot about what julian james was trying to say and to sort of simplify, one point he is uh, he made is that starting about 3,000 years ago, human mentality changed, and we started to, I like to use the term, we started to interiorize our experiences or to make things more psychological. And, of course, that doesn't make much sense unless you know what James meant by consciousness, but I think it is related to global nationalism because – By the 19th century, when nationalism started to take root around the world and uh, empires were collapsing and people needed a new way to relate to their communities and rulers and the elites needed new ways to, uh, if I can use the expression, build people, build a certain type of person. And part of that attempt was to instill within each person a political sense of belonging. In order to strengthen that installation, certain features of consciousness had to be, had to be enhanced. And so this is a little bit abstract. What, it, what I mean is, for example, this idea of one aspect of consciousness is a focus on individuality, that the contents of my mind matter very much. And we take that for granted in the modern world, But 150, 200 years ago, people had a different idea about that, and so there's on the surface nationalism and consciousness do not seem directly related. But if you look at things from a certain lens, you can see connections. And in general, what James argued, and what I also uh, would argue, is that each century that passes, we are becoming more interiorized Mm -hmm. and again that's an abstraction it's difficult to uh you know to 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 explain simply but um, well another way to put it is there's more focus on what goes on inside our our minds
1: right right and japan is a a peculiarly interesting place to study this because it, it is fairly recently you know in history with the meiji restoration that you have the formation of the japanese nation state. And at the same time, then you have this encounter in such things as the the Setsu or the I novel. That is, there, there is suddenly this interiority and the exploration of this interiority, not to say that it was completely absent, but there is in some way an appreciation for this or there is a development of this or there the uh, human interiority becomes a resource and almost it's like it has where previously in literature that you would not talk about your own you know your own interior suffering as as uh, inherently meaningful suddenly what takes place in literature and this is so clear in japan because it's so recent And we can trace it. Is there is now a a developing sense of uh, a different notion of human interiority? Is that would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's a really good example uh, because this interiorization affected all. It affects all realms of social existence, including the example you just gave, art. And so the I novel is a excellent example of that interiorization, how all of a sudden, relatively speaking, it was okay, in fact, encouraged to talk about your uh, inner mental content, sort of almost a stream of consciousness, which was probably very alien to some Japanese at the time, because you know, for, for the average person, that that was considered may, uh, perhaps a bit rude to do that. Yeah. That, that term in Japanese, um, I novel, the the i the of course indicates that turn that, that inward turn to a type of interiorization so that's actually uh, i think a really good example
1: and so what the the nationalism is playing into that that is that there is a new sensibility politically that is being encouraged so that literally you have to create a new kind of subject in the modern nation state and it's like we get to witness this in Japan in a way that I don't, I think it's very, it's much harder to trace in the West. And the, mm. I, I understand not to reify those categories, but right. uh, that there's a definite experience in Japan that is quite traceable due to the recent encounter with uh, Western powers.
2: Right. And I think what's interesting about Japan, you know, we have to keep in mind that as the industrializing imperialist powers of the 19th century spread around the globe, when they came into contact with many societies, most societies could not withstand the pressures of modernization and would collapse or be absorbed into other uh, other political systems. Where Japan is, there are other examples, but Japan is, uh, I think, a very good example. Uh, One of the few places that not only did it absorb modernity uh, successfully, it it also came up with its own version of modernity. And of course, you know, like I said, successfully, that has to be qualified, because we know that (laughs) Japan had, a, uh, of course, in the early part of the 20th century, had a, um, a very bloody experiences mm-hmm. with the Pacific War, but nevertheless, uh, J- Japan is an interesting place because, I, I mean, what to me, what's interesting about Japan in the global perspective is that at least the way Japan functions now, it is a democracy. I mean, it's not a freewheeling liberal democracy, perhaps, that we have in the United States, but it, it, it certainly, I think it's more democratic in some ways, actually, uh, J- Japan. So it's a functioning democracy with us. And this is the important point with a strong, vibrant middle class. Mm-hmm. And if you look at other societies um, that were not so successful, for example, um, Korea, of course, South Korea is, is, a, is a success story, but North Korea. I mean, we don't have to talk about what the the problems you see in North Korea. Of course, there are other success stories that have to be qualified, not just South Korea and Japan, Um, Taiwan, of of course, um, some Southeast Asian nations. But in any case, the point I'm making is it's very difficult to make that transition with a strong middle class that supports a democratic system. And Japan, given its size, it's quite remarkable that it was able to do that, that, you know, many countries fragment. That's what happened. And of course, China is still fragmented. Korea is still fragmented. Vietnam was fragmented not that long ago. Uh, So that's what's I think fascinating about Japan.
1: Yeah, there is some unify. And of course the, the unification is itself fairly recent. So that, you know, some, sometimes I think we can, project backwards, you know, and this is, of course, I think what Japanese do, is they project backwards a notion of japanese that actually is a fairly, can we call it recent in, in, invention even,
0: yes. that there is
1: a concerted effort by the Meiji state and by the cultural elites uh, following Meiji to create a Japanese identity which I think brings us to another area that you specialized in, and that's the role of psychology and psychoanalysis in Japan. I wonder how you see that playing a
2: role. I think we have to divide psychology from, from psychoanalysis. So, so the psychoanalytic approach is a type of psychology subsumed under this broader uh, intellectual categorization of psychology and psychology played a a vital role, a very, very important role in the modernization of Japan, turning Japan into a, a modern national state. And in my book on the history of psychology in Japan, I devote a fair amount of time to talking about how when the Japanese first started to develop their ideas of psychology, we're talking 1880s, 1890s, perhaps, they viewed it in a most, mostly in a very practical way, they viewed psychology as a way to uh, learn how to teach citizens, how to how to build citizens. Mm-hmm. Could, because we have to remember, at that time, not just in Japan, but many parts of the the so-called industrialized world, formal education, institutionalized education, with with a strict grading system, was either non-existent or relatively new. And so the Japanese built from scratch their educational system. But psychology played a very important role. And uh, many of the pioneering psychologists in Japan would travel to Europe or North America to get ideas on how to use psychology to come up with systems of pedagogy, to figure out what is the human mind? How can we design the mind? that it absorbs information so quickly because we need laborers. We need people who know their gender roles. We need people who can take orders. We, knew, we need people who have knowledge uh, of modern techno science. You know, we take those things for granted now. Mm-hmm. But back then, no one took those things for The elite did not take those things for granted. So that, that's one example. There are many other examples um, where psychology was vital mm-hmm. to the modernizing of Japan.
1: And so there is this image, and you, you're go- you have such a broader understanding that I do in this, but that if you go back, especially, you know, obviously in the 1880s and 90s, they're, they, they are trying to, to decide what it means to be Japanese, and there is a direct reading then of a kind of Western ego psychology, and of course, I think it, that there is a resistance to that that you're going to to find in fact a kind of a a utilization of western psychology i'm looking for your help and correction here but that there's also a reversal of it that is that in the west where we might privilege and the the ego in japan and especially of course as we're going up into the period in the 1930s of militarization there is a, a kind of turn Uh, especially to take the whole thing and flip it on its head, so that you'll have nationalists talking about, well, actually, the emperor is the superego. And we then, as his subjects, are all our egos are constituted in relationship to the emperor. And of course, instead of as in Freudian psychoanalysis, there is, uh, rather than a, a kind of attempt to control the superego or even a denigration of the superego, there is a privileging of the superego and a pointing to a kind of subservience to the superego. Right.
2: Yes. That I mean, that, that certainly, uh, as you pointed out, it, it, I mean, that was the the goal really of the Japanese system, sort of a, obsession with the emperor in the 1940s, the yeah. 1930s and forties. So this relates to, Um, what Julian Jaynes called consciousness, what I prefer to call conscious interiority to be more precise, but conscious interiority has different features. I've broken it down into about 12 or 13 different aspects to be more specific, but you touched upon one or two aspects. This idea of uh, what I would call self autonomy is a key feature of modern uh, conscious interiority. And you know, the idea in Japan is that ultimately The individual lacks self-autonomy. Of course, day-to-day reality, that was not necessarily the case. But certainly at an ideological level, the idea is that the emperor has ultimate autonomy. And another related concept is this idea of authorization. Who or what authorizes my thoughts and my behavior? And of course, we like to believe that it's my self, my, my ego. Where in Japan the official ideology is that at the end of the day it's not the individual ego; it is the emperor. To be more concrete, the emperor system and how that 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 hierarchy sort of sent an electric current down the different strata of society, and you know that was the vision. of But as I said, in reality, of course, uh, things were much more complicated and more more messy. Um, yeah. So. You know, it's an interesting question. Who, as I go, as we go through our life every day, who do we ultimately assign authorization to for our behavior? Is it me? Is it uh, my family? Is it my community? Is it the national state? Um, You know, where does the buck stop as it were? Is it God from a religious point of view? So there are many ways to divide up these aspects of conscious interiority. And we can see it gets very complicated but we need that complexity, I think, in order to understand human behavior, whether it's in Japan or anywhere else. And of course, part
1: you know the obvious thing here that the concerted effort to the the rise of the Meiji Restoration was a restoration of the emperor to a kind of central role, and that becomes even heightened in the militaristic period leading up to World War II. And so the, the idea that you need to produce a literature describing this, well, of course, what you're actually also simultaneously doing is enforcing an understanding that probably wasn't shared. That is, that there is, there are these clear uh, ego uh, expressions. There are people, you know, I, you can go back, the things that they're going to restrict, you know, uh, is they're trying to restrict individuality. Yes. and and of course our picture of Japan as uh, group oriented or even Japan Japanese as, uh, or the Japanese perception I think we have to to recognize that's an engineered ideology that is manipulated by the elites leading up I get a little confused because sometimes of course the ideology has been quite successful
2: oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Yes. I, I think you're right. And I think, you know, to, to go back to what you're talking about before, about how, how ja- the modern sense of japanese was invented beginning in the Meiji period. And after, of course, after World War II, it, it, it took a, um, a a different incarnation uh, given what happened during the war. But still, there is this idea that uh, many Japanese have, not all, but many Japanese have this idea that japanese has been continuous since ancient times and that there's an essential an, an essentialness to it that can be well defined yeah. but we know that's not true that like all identities it's socially constructed it's politically configured and i think in japan the reason why they seem to put so much emphasis on being japanese is because maybe unconsciously they have a very frat, they they know it's invented to some degree <laughs> There's a sort of fragility to it. And I think the elite recognizes that. The intellectual elite, the leaders in Japan, they're not, these are very brilliant people. They're not stupid. And they realize that, you know, this this Japanese thing uh, might be eroded. And so they sort of overreact. And this goes back to the first topic that, we, that you introduced the discussion with about the returnees and how unusual that is. And I also think it's important to keep in mind um, at least when I was in Japan, many Japanese had, um, not not many, but some Japanese uh, among students, for example, sort of had a negative view of individualism, which in Japanese is kojin uh, shugi. Uh, and that was sort of associated with foreigners, especially, of course, Americans, the heartland, supposedly of individualism. But you know, one thing I learned in Japan is whatever their views of this Anglo-American idea of individualism, they were very individualistic, you know? And so, as you probably know, in Japanese, they have a word, kosei, which means individuality. So they would shy away from individualism because that was foreign and it was anti-collectivity, but they were very pro-individuality. So they did have their own type of individualism. Um, And that gets lost, I think, in the media portrayals and popular portrayals of japan people buy into this idea that they're all group oriented but the most individualistic people i've ever met actually were in japan
1: so (laughs) and you could probably do a reverse thing of that and of course the same thing is true that a kind of romantic individualism has project been projected in american history and there's of course been a whole history's done well actually that is also an invented thing yes that that there is very much a group oriented uh you know uh, yes
2: i i find americans um i remember when i was back in the u.s and i would say i think in some ways americans are very group oriented and american students would object to that and they did not like to hear that and i would give examples Mm-hmm. I'd say, you know, many Americans hyphenate their ethnic racial identity, um, German-American, Irish-American. I mean, that's just one example. Uh, th- this idea of teamwork and being an organizational man is so important in the business culture of America. So there are many examples of, of groupism Yeah. In, in, when you stop and think about it in America, being a team player.
1: And it goes hidden here. You know, the phrase that you always hear in Japan until it just kind of drives you up the wall is what test you, you, know, we Japanese, we Japanese, this dot, dot, dot. And after 20 years uh, in Japan and I came back, I was surprised to be among a group of Americans who did exactly the same thing. They said, well, we, and I said, wait a minute, what we, who are you talking about? Yes. And of course there is this presumed we. And once you deconstruct that, you know, this particularly was in a church, and and of course, what they're saying by "we," they don't mean we Christians. What they meant was we Americans, <laughs> and yes. the, the, a kind of presumed understanding that those are the same thing. You know,
2: so you're right. So you you find this on both sides of the uh, Pacific,
1: and so th- this gets into uh, I think the psychoanalytic part here with someone like. And I'm most familiar with Takeo Doi, who wrote The Anatomy of Dependence on Amai or Amayadu. And I assume you're, I I know that you're familiar with the history there, that he is studying under uh, Kosawa, who goes to Vienna and actually uh, studies with Freud. And and I've never, I'm eager to try out my theory on you to to (laughs) see, because you know you read doy's anatomy of dependence understanding the genealogy of it well it's actually right out of freudian psychology it's not it's not always obvious that that's the case but it seems to me that what you have and and this book and this, and i think doy is particularly important you know we've been d- talking about the literature that has been produced that you can just call that Gene Rome. That is, this I- identity of Japanese-ness that is, in fact, an identity that is created through this literature or this understanding. And Doi is one of the key figures in this mm-hmm. literature. And th- in other words, he's going to explain to Japanese what it means to be Japanese. And in the book, this is my theory. I've never tested this on anybody, so I'm happy to have it debunked. That if you go through Doy's book in his definition of what amayadu is of dependence, he's actually appealing to Freud's death drive hmm. and his notion of the nirvana principle. But as you know, w- rather than as in Western ego psychology, where that is seen as a negative force, even evil, that Doy is going to privilege that. And that once you get that, and you begin to read Anatomy of of Dependence in that light, here is a case in point of what I think we've seen in the import of psychology in general. He's reverse engineering the whole thing Mm
0: -hmm. with
1: with the Ajase complex, which actually was uh, Kosawa's proposal to Freud as an alternative to the Oedipus complex.
2: Do you buy it? Well, I, I do. I, mean, I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, wh- what I think I'm hearing is that DOI, um, like many, uh, like, like a, a certain number of intellectuals in Japan, wants to Japanize foreign ideas. And so they're attracted to Freudianism, they're uh, attracted to Jungian psycho- psycho- psychoanalysis, whatever it is. But they feel a little bit uncomfortable because it's coming from the outside. So they have to think of a way to, as I said, make it Japanese. And that, uh, of course, that, that is what um, uh, Kosawa uh, did with the um, Ajase complex. And I'm not very familiar with it, but uh, what I do know is that it's sort of a reversal of the Freudian notion yeah, of the yeah. you have this tense contested relationship between the father and the son according to Freudianism, where with the Ajase complex, it's the, it's the, the mother and the son, mm-hmm. and this idea of, of this dynamic of guilt. And so, as you know, the idea supposedly, according to uh, uh, Kosawa, uh, is that um, Japanese in the family, children relate to their mothers, more than they do their fathers mm-hmm. and that is what is japanese right about of course um kosawa's theory so he he he's taken freudianism and just sort of in a sense however you want to describe it turn it upside down and put it sideways whatever but injected this rather than a, uh, a patriarchal view a sort of a view of matriarchy that, that mm-hmm. the mothers that that's what that's a defining feature of japan supposedly compared to the West. And of course, the West itself doesn't is a very vague notion, but mm-hmm. again, and that's the problem with these um, Nihonjin-ron the- the theories about being Japanese, is that they simplify things. There may be something to it. I mean, Toy's mm-hmm. idea of a uh, uh, amairu, uh, and amai, if you did this idea of uh, dependency, um, looking for dependency, giving dependent, making someone dependent on you, I mean, if you live in Japan, you can see many examples of that. There's something to it, probably. It's just that I think the problem is with Doi and uh, even uh, Kosawa, they they take an idea and they run too far with it because their agenda is to j- Japanize things, mm-hmm. and that hurts, I think, the scholarship.
1: This is uh, yeah, I, uh, a phrase I'm re- uh, from memory, you know, that – He's talking about Amayadu. And of course, he also admits there may be sick versions of this. But he describes, you know, his own transition to Amayadu. You know, Amayadu, that is, that what is the mother? Well, ultimately, mother, isn't Mother Earth the true mother upon which we're dependent? And isn't the ultimate, you understand, Doi is a good Presbyterian. <laughs> which has you know, nothing I, to do
2: with anything. <laughs> I didn't know that actually. That's very interesting I, I, I did not know that
1: uh, I always wonder how this all fits together, but he begins to talk and he says that to the ultimate amayadu must be that of death in which we merge once again with Mother Earth mm. And he quotes Freud's definition of the nirvana, you know he's looking at the nirvana nirvana principle, and of course the nirvana principle is Freud's picture of the er, uh, eros or the pleasure principle and the death drive being fused, and he's saying that's the goal. In other words, he's taking death, death drive, uh, thanatos, inamayadu, dependence, ultimate dependence, ultimate dependence, ultimate merging in, in death, and that is then a healthy individual. That is, uh, you know, whatever you think about Freud and Freudian psycho ego psychology, in other words, here are opposed pairs, poles, you know, poles apart, literally. He's taking what Freud says we're trying to extract ourselves from, and he's privileging it and saying, no, that's precisely the goal.
2: Yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> I've,
1: yeah. I've I've always thought that was worthy of a book, but I don't know. Who would have the patience to go through and read a book that long on, on uh, you know, Doi? <laughs> but in this literature, now the other individual that I became familiar with that actually, and I, I want to hear your take because Tadanobu Tsunoda, of course, also comes up with this whole brain theory. He's a, right. a brain researcher at, uh, it, it was in Ochinomizu. I went and visited Tsunoda. Oh, really? That must have been interesting. (laughs) Well, I had written an article on uh, the Japanese brain for the language teacher, which I see you're probably familiar with. I think that they've picked up some of your stuff. I had entitled it The Nihongo Religion. And the idea is, well, the language is actually the religion. Mm -hmm. You know, all of these guys, in a sense, that that this is Peter Dale. But I, I always thought Tsunoda was the prime example of this because he literally says he talks about the linguistic side of the brain a, in Japanese as uh, containing, uh, as being predominant. And that it also then, and this reminded me, and I'm not denigrating the Julian Jane stuff, mm-hmm. or, nor necessarily Tsunoda here. In other words, he's saying, well, you know, nature speaks to Japanese to the left side of the brain, so that if we hear crickets chirping, it is actually received in the linguistic side of the brain, so that nature speaks to Japanese, where Westerners only hear noise. And of course, he had a whole experimental system set up, which included magnetic resonance imaging later on to to show the, the brain lighting up. And then his theory was that English or things Western, even opera music or Western music, will in fact interfere with the reception of things in the linguistic side of the brain. So right. I, again, obviously, here's just more nationalism. The more right, but, but it's nationalism grounded in a kind of scientism. Yes. And I actually uh, Tanoda, when I went to see him, he got angry at me be- because a journal had picked up my article. You know these journals that kind of summarize it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they had and they had reentitled it "Why Japanese Read Comic Books."
2: Why Japanese are what?
1: <laughs> Why Japanese read comic books? Oh. oh, okay. And and the idea is, well, Tanoda had said that, well, they read comic books. And Westerners don't just skipping over the obvious exaggerations here. And because Japanese need to rest the left side of the brain. And so they're attached to manga because manga allows them to get away from this heavy ling- you know, left side dominance. And he said, that's also why Japanese sleep on trains, uh, because their left brain is so worn out by the end of the day that they're just exhausted. And so they picked this up, and and that was partly why I went to see him because he he in fact he actually didn't write to me he wrote to my employer. Oh, <laughs> at, really? At the time, <laughs> He was wow. so Angry. Uh, I hadn't actually uh, reduced it to that, but he showed me in, in our visit that he is, and I think it's true. In other words, uh, that he is was at that time that we're talking a long time ago now, twenty years ago very much respected in psychological Western psychological journals. and he gave me several issues of uh, psychological journals where they referenced Sonoda as a brain a brain expert who they they you know of course it, it's interesting that people in these in psychoanal or psychology or that they, they didn't recognize the nature of the literature that they were encountering. But in fact, they apparently acknowledged his experimental techniques and his results. But I'm curious, what? Uh, give us a reaction. What, what's your, your take on Tsunoda? So to,
2: to start with general principles, I'm not a neurologist. I'm not uh, trained. I don't have a PhD in psychology, but I do believe that, of course, the environment can radically change. Uh, configure even reconfigure rewire the brain you know that we of course as you know we call this neural plasticity or i prefer ne- neurocultural plasticity so you cultural aspect being the environment and how our neurology and environment interact and come together so i'm not against that in principle but i think the problem with the Tsunoda from what i've heard and i'm i'm not very familiar with his work i haven't really looked carefully over his publications or anything like that. But um, I, j- just from what I've heard, he, his experiments are questionable because of the premises. Um, and it sounds scientific, but at least the impression I get, he falls into this nihonjin trap of dividing the world into Japanese, everybody else. I mean, he may say the West, but I get the impression he means everyone else. In other words, the Japanese are unique among all peoples. And the other thing, of course, is English. And again, I could be wrong. Maybe he has looked at other languages besides comparing Japanese to English, but you can't make the claims he's making by just comparing Japanese to English. I remember somebody wrote uh, a critique of his work and uh, they used the, they described Tsunoda's agenda as insect nationalism and the insects being you know how insects generate this noise
1: the cicadas the, the, yeah, the,
2: yeah. the cicadas and this, this beautiful uh, sounds that only japanese can uh, appreciate mm-hmm. and so you know that there's a lot of science out there so-called science out there now that looks very convincing when you throw in an mri study or neuroimaging um, fancy statistics, whatever, uh, but uh, that doesn't make it good science. And yeah. so that that's just my general uh, impression with um, Tsunoda. When I first started in Japanology, in fact, that was one of the first issues, um, one of the first things I read about, and it, 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 it was that book you mentioned, Peter Dale, yeah, I, I yeah. read his book. So right from the beginning, you know, and I, and I actually forgot about uh, Tsunoda, and uh, until you in your email, you mentioned him, and mm-hmm. I had to look the name up and then it all came back to me. I, yeah. I had forgotten all this. And I think I mentioned to you I, in my response in my email, I was quite surprised that he still has a lot of traction because I, I, I do think the the science is, is questionable. And again, that's just you know just my opinion.
1: I've been gone for 15 years. I would assume that there that you know when I was there, uh i think you could say he was the best known scientist perhaps he was lecturing in universities and i was encountering his stuff uh, even in our local church the uh, we had a preacher come in and explain you know how we japanese you know he was basically he was running down sonoda so even uh, even if people don't know the name or they don't know where it's coming from they've been in some way exposed to this understanding. And, and it was still a very prevalent understanding, even in a city on you know, Scuba was a fairly cosmopolitan city sure. that uh, you're going to run into more PhDs and people that have lived overseas. And yet even at a place like Scuba university, this stuff was, was still popular at least 15 years ago.
2: Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Because, you know when i went into japan and into, into japanology i started to publish in the early mid 90s or so and, and this was a constant theme a sort of western trained anthropologist whether they're american european or, or japanese western trained anthropologists always felt under siege because we had a struggle against a lot of these a lot of this nihonjinron theorizing mm-hmm. that was picked up by the media It was picked up by other academics, other Western academics who who bought into this, because some of it sounds plausible, but when you scratch the surface, you see that there are a lot of problems with it, and that when you scratch the surface, you find out there is a a very determined political agenda that motivates this type of thinking and research. And I I haven't looked at it, I don't know what, what the state of affairs is in Japan now, but I would not be surprised if the Rong books still sell pretty well. Um, and th- th- this is a testament to how powerful the ideology of being Japanese is. And of course, as we were talking um, earlier, the foundations were laid uh, 150 years ago during the Meiji period for a modern conception of what it means to be Japanese. As I said, unconsciously, Japanese aren't sure who they are Yeah, And so they feel they some Japanese overreact and feel that they have to buy into these theories about what it means to be Japanese, Um, because there are many other not not just to note, as we've been discussing, but, you know, this this permeates Japanese pop culture. This idea of always guarding the boundaries, the border between Japanese and foreignness, that that's a very important ideology in Japan.
0: forgingplowshares.org.